0: Without having to break the bank, inexpensive doesn't have to mean cheap. Check out the show notes to find more about Glary. Twenty watt amplifiers for under fifty dollars. Hard cases for your electric guitar for under eighty. Guitars themselves for under ninety dollars. Come on, folks, check out the show notes. Get a Glary. You're listening to KZOM, Olean on Public Radio. Once more we head into those dark woods, further feeling those malevolent forces upon us. Once again we walk down the lightless stone staircase in the middle of nowhere. You're listening to KZON. Hey everyone, welcome back to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. It's one of our reading episodes. And we have a variety of people reading various ghost stories from various writers, such as H.P. Lovecraft, Edgar Allan Poe, Algernon Blackwood, and Charlotte Gilman, to name a few. So most of these episodes are roughly about half an hour or more, and there's going to be two episodes per story. And yeah, that's what we've got going on, some spooky stories for you to listen to. With some cool, snare drums going on in the background. And yeah, not a whole bunch of noise to interrupt what's going on. So I hope you enjoy it. Some spooky stories. <laughs> and if you are lucky enough at the very beginning of october hp lovecraft film festival and there is also going to be a second hp lovecraft film festival that's going to be less in person and more of a streaming thing check us out on there dave's got some stuff going on on that i'm going to have some stuff going on on that and also i'd like to welcome our newest sponsor taza chocolate stone ground chocolate and you know what? This is super minimally processed. If you're like me and you have a bunch of food allergies, you can't do dairy. They have dairy-free chocolates. They, they, they use dairy alternatives. Uh, minimally processed, of course. Organic. I love them. You love them. Taza chocolates. They, they come in those discs that you can break up and put into hot beverages and stir up. Ooh, I love it so much. Anyway, Oz. So why not? i don't know sit down with a nice warm beverage we've got the tea that you can get we've got the coffee you can get i don't know maybe microwave some psychedelic water baby ghostly horror stories
1: recording by cliff stone of sydney australia story 15 the tradition the noises outside the little flat at first were very disconcerting after living in the country They made sleep difficult. At the cottage in Sussex where the family had lived, night brought deep, comfortable silence, unless the wind was high when the pine trees round the duck pond made a sound like surf, or if the gale was from the southwest, the orchard roared a bit unpleasantly. But in London it was very different. Sleep was easier in the daytime than at night. For after nightfall, the rumble of the traffic became spasmodic instead of continuous, the motor horns startled like warnings of alarm. After comparative silence, the furious rushing of a taxicab touched the nerves. From dinner till 11 o'clock, the streets subsided gradually. Then came the army from theatres, parties, and late dinners hurrying home to bed. The motor horns during this hour were lively and incessant, like bugles of a regiment moving into battle. The parents rarely retired until this attack was over. If quick about it, sleep was possible then before the flying of the night birds, an uncertain squadron screamed half the street awake again. But these finally disposed of, a delightful hush settled down upon the neighborhood, profounder far than any piece of the countryside. The deep rumble of the produce wagons coming into the big London markets from the farms, generally about 3 a.m. held no disturbing quality. But sometimes, in the stillness of very early morning, when streets were empty and pavements all deserted, there was a sound of another kind that was startling and unwelcome, for it was ominous. It came with a clattering violence that made nerves quiver and forced the heart to pause and listen. A strange resonance was in it, a volume of sound, moreover, that was hardly justified by its cause, for it was hooves. A horse swept hurrying up the deserted street and was close upon the building in a moment. It was audible suddenly, no gradual approach from a distance, but as though it turned a corner from soft ground that muffled the hooves onto the echoing hard paving that emphasised the dreadful clatter. Nor did it die away again when once the house was reached. It ceased as abruptly as it came. The hooves did not go away. It was the mother who heard them first and drew her husband's attention to their disagreeable quality. It is the mail vans, dear, he answered. They go at 4am to catch the early trains into the country. She looked up sharply as though something in his tone surprised her. But there's no sound of wheels, she said. And then, as he did not reply, she added gravely, You have heard it too, John. I can tell. I have, he said. I have heard it. Twice, "'and they looked at one another searchingly, "'each trying to read the other's mind. "'She did not question him. "'He did not propose writing to complain in a newspaper. "'Both understood something that neither of them understood. "'I heard it first. she then said softly, "'the night before Jack got the fever. "'And as I listened, I heard him crying. "'But when I went in to see, he was asleep.' The noise stopped just outside the building. There was a shadow in her eyes as she said this, and a hush crept in between her words. I did not hear it go, she said this almost beneath her breath. He looked a moment at the ground, then coming towards her he took her in his arms and kissed her, and she clung very tightly to him. Sometimes, he said in a quiet voice, a mounted policeman passes down the street, I think. "'It is a horse,' she answered. "'But whether it was a question of mere corroboration he did not ask, "'for at that moment the doctor arrived "'and the question of little Jack's health "'became the paramount matter of immediate interest. "'The great man's verdict was uncommonly disquieting. "'All that night they sat up in the sick room. "'It was strangely still, as though by one accord "'the traffic avoided the house where a little boy hung between life and death.' The motor horns even had a muffled sound and heavy drays and wagons used the wide streets. There were fewer taxicabs about or else they flew by noiselessly. Yet no straw was down. The expense prohibited that. And towards morning, very early, the mother decided to watch alone. She had been a trained nurse before her marriage, accustomed when she was younger to long vigils. You go down, dear, and get a little sleep. "'She urged in a whisper. "'He's quiet now. "'At five o'clock I'll come for you to take my place.' "'You'll fetch me at once,' he whispered, "'if...' "'Then hesitated as though breath failed him. "'A moment he stood there staring from her face to the bed. "'If you hear anything,' he finished. "'She nodded, and he went downstairs to his study, "'not to his bedroom. "'He left the door ajar,' He sat in darkness, listening. Mother, he knew, was listening too beside the bed. His heart was very full, for he did not believe the boy could live till morning. The picture of the room was all the time before his eyes. The shaded lamp, the table with the medicines, the little wasted figure beneath the blankets, and Mother, close beside it, listening. He sat alert, ready to fly upstairs at the smallest cry. But no sound broke the stillness, the entire neighbourhood was silent, all London slept. He heard the clock strike three in the dining room at the end of the corridor. It was still enough for that. There was not even the heavy rumble of a single produce wagon, though usually they passed about this time on their way to Smithfield and Covent Garden Markets. He waited, far too anxious to close his eyes. At four o'clock he would go up and relieve her vigil. For, he knew, was the time when life sinks to its slowest ebb. Then, in the middle of his reflections, thought stopped dead, and it seemed his heart stopped too. Far away, becoming nearer with extraordinary rapidity, a sharp, clear sound broke out of the surrounding stillness. A horse's hooves. At first it was so distant that it might have been almost on the high roads of the country, but the amazing speed with which it came closer and the sudden increase of the beating sound was such that by the time he turned his head it seemed to have entered the street outside. It was within a hundred yards of the building. The next second it was before the very door and something in him blenched. He knew a moment's complete paralysis. The abrupt cessation of the heavy clatter was strangest of all. It came like lightning. It struck. It paused. It did not go away again. Yet the sound of it was still beating in his ears as he dashed upstairs three steps at a time. It seemed in the house as well, on the stairs behind him, in the little passageway, inside the very bedroom. It was an appalling sound. Yet he entered a room that was quiet, orderly and calm. It was silent. Beside the bed, his wife sat holding Jack's hand and stroking it. She was soothing him. Her face was very peaceful. No sound, but her gentle whisper was audible. He controlled himself by a tremendous effort, but his face betrayed his consternation and distress. Hush, she said beneath her breath. He's sleeping much more calmly now. The crisis, God bless, is over, I do believe. I dared not leave him. He saw in a moment that she was right, and an untenable relief passed over him He sat down beside her, very cold, yet perspiring with heat. ''You heard?'' he asked after a pause. ''Nothing,'' she replied quickly, except his pitiful wild words when the delirium was on him. ''It's past. It lasted but a moment, or I'd have called you.'' He stared closely into her tired eyes. ''And his words?'' he asked in a whisper. Whereupon she told him quietly that the little chap had sat up with wide-opened eyes and talked excitedly about a great, great horse, he heard, but that was not coming for him. He laughed and said he would not go with it because he was not ready yet. Some scrap of talk he had overheard from us, she added, when we discussed the traffic once. "'But you heard nothing?' he repeated almost impatiently. "'No, she had heard nothing. After all, then,' He had dozed a moment at his chair. Four weeks later, Jack, entirely convalescent, was playing a restricted game of hide-and-seek with his sister in the flat. It was really a forbidden joy, owing to noise and risk of breakages, but he had unusual privileges after his grave illness. It was dusk. The lamps in the street were being lit. "'Quietly remember your mother's resting in her room,' were the father's orders." She had just returned from a week by the sea, recuperating from the strain of nursing for so many nights. The traffic rolled and boomed along the streets below. Jack, do come on and hide. It's your turn. I had last. But the boy was standing spellbound by the window, staring hard at something on the pavement. Sybil called and tugged in vain, tears threatened. Jack would not budge. He declared he saw something. "'Oh, you're always seeing something. I wish you'd go and hide. "'It's only because you can't think of a good place, really.' "'Look!' he cried in a voice of wonder. "'And as he said it, his father rose quickly from his chair before the fire. "'Look!' the child repeated with delight and excitement. "'It's a great big horse, and it's perfectly white all over.' "'His sister joined him at the window. "'Where? Where? I can't see it. Oh, do show me.' Their father was standing close behind them now. I heard it, he was whispering, but so low the children did not notice him. His face was the colour of chalk. Straight in front of our door, stupid, can't you see it? Oh, I do wish it had come for me, it's such a beauty. And he clapped his hands with pleasure and excitement. Quick, quick, it's going away again. But while the children stood half squabbling by the window... Their father leaned over a sofa in the adjoining room, above a figure whose heart and sleep had quietly stopped its beating. The great white horse had come, but this time he had not only heard its wonderful arrival, he had also heard it go. It seemed he heard the awful hooves beat down the sky far, far away, and very swiftly, dying into silence, finally up among the stars. End of the tradition.
0: Welcome to Innsmouth, stranger.
2: Hi, I'm Rob Whiten from the Innsmouth Book Club. Join me and my fellow guide, John Chadwick, as we take you on a fortnightly tour of Innsmouth. We visit places such as the Picture House, the Library, and Innsmouth Museum to discuss all aspects of weird fiction, whether it be book, film, music, TV, or art. As well as that, we stop over at the Gilman House to have a chat with a resident guest. That includes authors, artists, musicians, in fact, Lovecraftian creatives of all types. You can find our free shows on Patreon, And there you can also sign up as a patron, which brings you bonus content, plus a monthly PDF copy of Innsmouth News, which features articles, author spotlights, all the latest news and reviews, and more. You can find us at patreon.com forward slash InnsmouthBC. We hope to see you soon, because remember, Innsmouth isn't just a place, it's a state of mind.
0: Month. Bandwidth is brought to you by Psychedelic Water. Legal psychedelic suspended in green tea and then put inside of a can for you. Psychedelic Water. Who needs a Tilling House Resonator when you've got psychedelic water? Are you a curvy girl? Do you know a curvy girl? You love a curvy girl. Check out the show links for Curvy Girl. Plus size clothing for plus size women instruments if you want to modify a guitar check out glary if you want to get into guitars if you love guitars glary things from another world it's a store that has art it has toys it has comics, graphic novels. It is the place if you like that kind of stuff. Dave and I have talked about it in the show before. They were ever a sponsor. Dave like to check out their stuff. I like to check out their stuff. They're pretty cool toys. Art, graphic design, not graphic design, graphic novels for you. Things from another world. Check out the show notes. Uh, check out the links on, on our website, PGTTC. Yeah, we've got specific stuff there to let you know what they've got going on for specials. Anyway, thank you again so much. Did you know that there is a THC derivative that's legal called Delta 8? Not to be confused with the Delta variant, but Delta 8, yeah. Uh, You can get it in chewable form, and it's sold at uh what's what's golden goat cbd one of our sponsors yeah you can get some delta eight and you can also pick up some cbd chewables gummies they've got smokables for the delta eight and they've got all kinds of stuff for cbd and they can help you out Uh, check the show notes golden goat and while you're in the show notes hey do you know about donner Donner has so many amazing musical instruments from all kinds, mandolins, banjos. They've got drums. They've got amplifiers. They've got guitars. They've got all kinds of stuff, and they ship worldwide. Check out Donner. I think you're going to like it, and I think Donner's going to have a good deal for you. So I, I love their electric guitars. A lot of the music that I perform for the show is either on one brand or it's on a Donner. So check out Donner. And check out some savings. All right. Thank you once again for listening to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. You can help show your support by going to the show notes and following any of the links that will tell you how to support the show how to support our guests. And thank you to all of our guests who you can find in the show notes. Rate, review, subscribe. And remember, patrons get priority access to Asking us questions, suggesting topics, even, I don't know, uh, submitting stuff. Actually, you don't have to be a patron to submit anything. That's how Dave got on the show, and that's how you can get on the show too. It's The People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends. Thank you for listening.
1: Recording by Cliff Stone of Sydney, Australia. THE UNKNOWN QUANTITY FROM UNCANNY TALES Professor William James Maynard was in a singularly happy and contented mood as he strolled down the high street after a long and satisfactory interview with the solicitor to his late cousin, whose sole heir he was. It was exactly a month by the calendar since he had murdered this cousin, and everything had gone most satisfactorily since. The fortune was proving quite as large as he had expected and not even an inquest had been held upon the dead man. The coroner had decided that it was not necessary and the professor had agreed with him. At the funeral, the professor had been the principal mourner and the local paper had commented sympathetically on his evident emotion. This had been quite genuine for the professor had been fond of his relative who had always been very good to him. But still, when an old man remains obstinately healthy, when his doctor can say with confidence that he is good for another 20 years at least, and when he stands between you and a large fortune which you need and of which you can make much better use in the cause of science and the pursuit of knowledge, what alternative is there? It becomes necessary to take steps. Therefore, the professor had taken steps. Looking back today on that day a month ago and the critical preceding week, the professor felt that the steps he had taken had been as judicious as successful. He had set himself to solve a problem in higher mathematics. He had found it easier to solve the many he was obliged to grapple with in the course of his studies. A policeman saluted as the professor passed and he acknowledged it with the charming old world courtesy that made him so popular a figure in the town. Across the way was the doctor who had certified the cause of death. The professor, passing benevolently on, was glad he had now enough money to carry out his projects. He would be able to publish at once his great work on the secondary variation of the differential calculus that hitherto had languished in manuscript. It would make a sensation, he thought, There was more than one generally accepted theory he had challenged or contradicted in it. And he would put in hand at once his great, his long-projected work, A History of the Higher Mathematics. It would take 20 years to complete, it would cost 20,000 pounds or more, and it would breathe into mathematics the new, vivid life that Bergson's works have breathed into metaphysics. The professor... Thought very kindly of the dead cousin, whose money would provide for this great work, he wished greatly the dead man could know to what high use his fortune was designed. Coming towards him, he saw the wife of the vicar of his parish. The professor was a regular churchgoer. The vicar's wife saw him too and beamed. She and her husband were more than a little proud of having so well-known a man in their congregation. She held out her hand and the professor was about to take it when she drew it back with a startled movement. "'Oh, I beg your pardon,' she exclaimed, distressed as she saw him raise his eyebrows. "'There is blood on it.' Her eyes were fixed on his right hand, which he was still holding out. In fact, on the palm a small drop of blood showed distinctly against the firm pink flesh. Surprised, the professor took out his handkerchief and wiped it away." He noticed that the vicar's wife was wearing white kid gloves. Oh, I beg your pardon, she said again. It, it startled me somehow. I thought you must have cut yourself. I hope it's not much. Some scratch, I suppose, he said. It's nothing. The vicar's wife, still slightly discomposed, launched out into some parochial matter she had wished to mention to him. They chatted a few moments and then parted. The professor took an opportunity to look at his hand. He could detect no sign of any cut or abrasion. The skin seemed whole everywhere. He looked at his handkerchief. There was still visible on it the stain where he had wiped his hand, and this stain seemed certainly blood. Odd, he muttered as he put the handkerchief back in his pocket. Very odd. His thoughts turned again to his projected A History of the Higher Mathematics, and he forgot all about the incident till, as it happened that day month, the first of the month by the calendar, when he was sitting in his study with an eminent colleague to whom he was explaining his great scheme. ''If you are able to carry it out,'' the colleague said slowly, ''your book will mark an epoch in human thought, but the cost will be tremendous.'' ''I estimate it at £20,000,'' answered the professor calmly, "'I am fully prepared to spend twice as much. "'You know I have recently inherited 40,000 pounds from a relative.' "'The eminent colleague nodded and looked very impressed. "'It is magnificent,' he said warmly. "'Magnificent?' "'He added, "'You've cut yourself, do you know?' "'Cut myself?' the professor echoed, surprised. "'Yes,' answered the eminent colleague. "'There is blood upon your hand.' Your right hand. In fact, a spot of blood slightly larger than that which had appeared before showed plainly upon the professor's right hand. He wiped it away with his handkerchief and went on talking eagerly, for he was deeply interested. He did not think of the matter again till just as he was getting into bed when he noticed a red stain upon his handkerchief. He frowned and examined his hand carefully. There was no sign of any wound or cut from which the blood could have come and he frowned again. Very odd, he muttered. A calendar hanging on the wall reminded him that it was the first of the month. The days passed, the incident faded from his memory and four weeks later he came down one morning to breakfast in an unusually good temper. There was a certain theory he had worked on the night before he meant to write to a friend about It seemed to him his demonstration had been really brilliant and then also he was already planning out with great success the details of the scheme for his great work. He was making an excellent breakfast, for his appetite was always good, and needing some more cream he rang the bell. The maid appeared, he showed her the empty jug, and as she took it she dropped it with a sudden cry, smashing it to pieces on the floor. Very pale, she stammered out, beg pardon sir your your hand there is blood upon your hand in fact on the professor's right hand there showed a drop of blood perceptibly larger this time than before the professor stared at it stupidly he was sure it had not been there a moment before and he noticed by the heading of the newspaper at the side of his plate that this was the first of the month with a hasty movement of his napkin he wiped the drop of blood away The maid, still apologising, began to pick up the pieces of the jug she had broken, but the professor had no further appetite for his breakfast. He silenced her with a gesture, and leaving a piece of toast half eaten on his plate, he got up and went into his study. All this was trivial, absurd even, yet somehow it disturbed him. He got out a magnifying glass and examined his hand under it. There was nothing to account for the presence of the drop of blood he and the maid had seen. It occurred to him that he might have cut himself in shaving, but when he looked in the mirror he could find no trace of even the slightest wound. He decided that, though he had not been aware of it, his nerves must be a little out of order. That was disconcerting. He had not taken his nerves into consideration for the simple reason that he had never known that he possessed any. He made up his mind to treat himself to a holiday in Switzerland. One or two difficult ascents might brace him up a bit. Three days later he was in Switzerland and a few days later again he was on the summit of a minor but still difficult peak. It had been an exhilarating climb and he had enjoyed it. He said something laughingly to the head guide to the effect that climbing was good sport and a fine test for the nerves. The head guide agreed and added politely that if the nerves of Monsieur the Professor had shown signs of failing on the lower glacier, for example, they might all have been in difficulties. The Professor thrilled with pleasure at the head guide's implied praise. He was glad to know on such good authority that his nerves were all right, and the incidents that had driven him there began to fade in his memory. Nevertheless, he found himself watching the calendar with a certain interest and when he woke on the morning of the first day of the next month, he glanced quickly at his right hand. There was nothing there. He dressed and spent, as he had planned, a quiet day, busy with his correspondence. His spirits rose as the day passed. He was still watchful, but more confident, and after dinner, though he had meant to go straight to his room, he agreed to join in a suggested game of bridge. They were cutting for partners when one of the ladies who was to take part in the game dropped with a little cry the card she had just lifted. "'Oh, there is blood upon your hand!' she cried. "'On your right hand, Professor!' Upon the professor's right hand there showed now a drop of blood larger still than those other three had been. Yet the very moment before it had not been there. The professor put down his cards without a word and left the room going straight upstairs. The drop of blood was still standing on his hand. He soaked it up carefully with some cotton wool he had, and was not surprised to find beneath no sign or trace of any cut or wound. The cotton wool he made up carefully into a parcel, and addressed it to an analytical chemist he knew, enclosing with it a short note. He rang the bell sent the parcel to the post and then he got out pen and paper and set himself to solve this problem, as in his life he had solved so many others. Only this time it seemed somehow as though the data were insufficient. Idly his pen traced upon the paper in front of him a large X, the sign of the unknown quantity. But how in this case to find out what was the unknown quantity? His hand, his firm and steady hand, shook so that he could no longer hold his pen. He rang the bell again and ordered a stiff whiskey and soda. He was a man of almost ascetic habits, but tonight he felt that he needed some stimulant. Neither did he sleep very well. The next day he returned to England. Almost at once he went to see his friend, the analytical chemist, to whom he had sent the parcel from Switzerland. Mammalian blood pronounced the chemist, probably human, rather a curious thing about it too. What's that? asked the professor. Why, his friend answered, I was able to identify the distinctive bacillus. He named the rare bacillus of an unusual and obscure disease, and this disease was that from which the professor's cousin had died. The professor was a man interested in all phenomena. In other circumstances he would have observed keenly that which now occurred when the hair of his head underwent a curious involuntary stiffening and bristling process that in popular but sufficiently accurate terms might be described as standing on end. But at the moment he was in no state for scientific observations. He got out of the house somehow, he said he did not feel well, and his friend the chemist agreed that his holiday in Switzerland did not seem to have done him much good. The professor went straight home and shut himself in his study. It was a fine room, ranged all round with books. On the shelves nearest to his hand stood volumes on mathematics, the theory of mathematics, the study of mathematics, pure mathematics, applied mathematics. But there was not any one of these books that told him anything about such a thing as this. Though it is true, there were many references in them, here and there, to X, the unknown quantity. The professor took his pen and wrote a large X upon the sheet of paper in front of him. An unknown quantity, he muttered. An unknown quantity. The days passed peacefully. Nothing was out of the ordinary except that the professor developed an odd trick of continually glancing at his right hand. He washed it a good deal too, but the first of the month was not yet. On the last day of the month, he told his housekeeper that he was feeling a little unwell. She was not surprised, for she had thought him looking ill for some time past. He told her he would probably spend the next day in bed for a thorough rest, and she agreed that that would be a very good idea. When he was in his own room and had undressed, he bandaged his right hand with care, tying it up carefully and thoroughly with three or four of his large linen handkerchiefs. Whatever comes shall now show, he said to himself. He stayed in bed accordingly the next day. His housekeeper was a little uneasy about him. He ate nothing and his eyes were strangely bright and feverish. She overheard him once muttering something to himself about the unknown quantity, and that made her think that he had been working too hard. She decided he must see the doctor. The professor refused peremptorily. He declared he would be quite well again in the morning. The housekeeper, an old servant, agreed but sent for the doctor all the same. And when he had come, the professor felt he could not refuse to see him without appearing peculiar and he did not wish to appear peculiar. So he saw the doctor, but declared there was nothing much the matter. He merely felt a little unwell and out of sorts and tired. "'You have hurt your hand?' the doctor asked, noticing how it was bandaged. "'I cut it slightly, a trifle,' the professor answered. "'Yes,' the doctor answered. "'I see there is blood on it.' "'What?' the professor stammered. "'There is blood upon your hand.' The doctor repeated. The Professor looked. In fact, a deep wide stain showed crimson upon the bandages in which he had swathed his hand. Yet he knew that the moment before the linen had been fair and white and clean. It is nothing, he said quickly, hiding his hand beneath the bedclothes. The doctor, a little puzzled, took his leave, but had not gone ten yards when the housekeeper flew screaming after him. It seemed that She had heard a fall and when she had gone into the professor's bedroom, she had found him lying there dead upon the hearthrug. There was a razor in his hand and there was a ghastly gash across his throat. The doctor went back at a run, but there was nothing he or any man could do. One thing he noticed with curiosity was that the bandage had been torn away from the dead man's hand and that oddly enough there seemed to be on the hand no sign of any cut or wound. There was a large solitary drop of blood on the palm at the root of the thumb, but of course that was no great wonder, for the wound the dead man had dealt himself had bled freely. Apparently death had not been quite instantaneous, for with a last effort the professor seemed to have traced an X upon the floor in his own blood with his forefinger. The doctor mentioned this at the inquest. The coroner had decided at once that in this case an inquest was certainly necessary and he suggested that it showed the professor had worked too hard and was suffering from overwork, which had disturbed his mental balance. The coroner took the same view, and in his short address to the jury, adduced the incident as proof of a passing mental disturbance. Very probably, said the coroner, there was some problem that had worried him, and that he was still endeavouring to work out. As you are aware, gentlemen, the sign X is used to symbolise the Unknown Quantity. An appropriate verdict was accordingly returned, and the professor was duly interred in the same family vault as that in which, so short a time previously, his cousin had been laid to rest. End of The Unknown Quantity.
0: Show notes. Check them out. That's where you're going to find sponsors and guests and T-shirts and stickers and high fives. All right. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you later. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening to the show. Music is by me, D.B. Spitzer, edited and produced by me, D.B. Spitzer. The interview portions are always edited and produced by David Heath. And, hey, you can find us wherever you find podcasts. So check out PGTTCM.com. And if you don't want to check out the Patreon, and if you don't want to do that, and you want to help out the show, just go to sponsors or buy T-shirts or anything like that. Anything helps. Thank you again.